Author Stephen Elliott sits down and discusses his book, Adderall Diaries, Happy Baby. We also discuss him being the current editor-in-chief of The Rumpus, a senior editor at Epic Magazine. He's out promoting his new movie called After Adderall, which includes Bill Check and Michael C. Hall. Good stuff. Let's have a listen. Um, so just a, a, an introduction that you wrote Adderall Diaries. Uh, you've been directing, you just directed after Adderall. Mm-hmm. You did Happy Baby, which was quoted as bewilderingly alive in a way most books can't imagine. And you're frequently reviewed by the New York Times. But I'm you know, stoked to sit down with somebody uh, with... Uh, who, who's just doing incredible work and seemingly going up and having fun doing it. So thanks for coming. I super appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, the, uh, t- so you're, you're on this tour kind of promoting After Adderall. Yeah, well, After Adderall is a crazy movie. Um, it can't ever be distributed. You know, uh, we don't have contracts with any of the actors. I shot it for $10,000. Um, so it's like a paper-free movie, and there's like some footage in there that's stolen. And in order to distribute it, we would have to do SAG contracts because all the actors are SAG actors. Like, it's basically kind of an illegal movie, so it can only show at like special screenings, nonprofits, festivals. A lot of schools are showing it, um, which is funny because there's you know there's some pretty graphic scenes in there. Uh, but yeah, so it's a weird movie because it, this is the only way it can ever be seen. It's not like I'm going to go on this tour and then it's going to go up online or you're going to be able to get it on Amazon. It's like, this is it. You go see the festival or the school that's playing it or you just don't see it, you know. Yeah, and when did it get released? I mean, uh, we, so I saw the movie The Adderall Diaries, which was based on my book The Adderall Diaries, yeah. in April of 2015. And then I wrote this script, like, in the following two weeks. It just uh-huh. kind of... Just came out of you? Just flowed. It just flooded out of me. It was kind of amazing and beautiful uh, to be so inspired. And then we shot it in August and finished it, you know, around February. So, you know, we shot it in eight days for 10000 bucks, And, you know, it's a movie about James Franco making a movie about me. So yes. it's this very meta, weird, experiential movie. Like- it's, it's surreal. It's not a documentary. It's a reimagining. You know, it's very funny and weird. It's very guitar. It's like... It's like uh, Pierre LeFou and uh, maybe a little Stardust Memories, Woody uh-huh. Allen's weird movie, yeah. you know. And, and so how did you convince, maybe not convince may not be the right word, but how did you get these you know, great actors to do this on a $10,000 budget and mm-hmm. it won't be distributed, but it'll be fun? And You know, it's funny. Like I made this my third movie. In my second movie, we had $200,000, but it was very ambitious in a lot of locations. And it was just so impossible in so many ways. And this movie, we had, like, better cameras. You know, we had, like, better locations. We had, uh, you know, only $10,000. And what I learned was that it might be easier to make a movie with, with no money than not enough money. Mm-hmm. When you have no money, then nobody gets anything. Mm-hmm. And everybody's into that. You mm-hmm. know, what people are afraid of is getting screwed. Mm-hmm. They don't want to, like... 
that person to get paid when they're not getting paid. But if nobody is definitely making anything, like for sure nobody makes anything, then everybody's just game. Then it's really fun. Then you're all just creating this thing and it's just this uh, kind of gloriously creative. I mean, it's just an amazing... Pro- it was so fun. It was just so much more fun than my first two movies. You know, I had not thought I was even going to do a movie again. But yeah. then I was working full time and I had enough... You know, I had this money saved and I was like, you know, well, I'm just going to do it this way. Because now that I know how to make a movie, I'm just going to like do it with my own money and no producers and... Man, it was great. It was I, so fun. I guess I wonder where did the ten thousand dollars go if it's if it's nothing. Was it? Uh, you still got to buy everybody their food. Yeah, I had to give the cinematographer probably a thousand dollars to buy the lenses and pay yeah. him a little bit. Um, I mean, he donated a fifty thousand dollar camera. We didn't have to rent or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, food was a lot. Putting people up. There's a few people who came from out of town, so I like, rented an apartment for a week. Yeah, you know things like that. I mean, it adds up for sure. I mean. 10,000 is, is pretty low. I mean, it might even, after some of the stuff that came up in post-production, might even be 15,000, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, But that's a, a salient point, right? I, mean, I still paid the actors. Right? Yeah. I paid them, actually, the SAG minimum, what they would have gotten in a SAG movie. We just couldn't afford to pay the SAG uh, deposit. Uh-huh. So we couldn't do, do... And also, there was nobody to collect contracts and like look after that stuff. There was no person for that. I couldn't do... Every, I was already playing the lead. And directing and writing, so I couldn't do do that too. Yeah, and so you play the lead. I do play the lead. Yeah, okay, yeah. that's funny. My I was, first time acting. Oh, how was that? That was amazing. The very first scene we shot was when I was opposite Michael C. Hall. Yes. And so your first time acting, and you're doing a scene with Michael C. Hall, and so that's crazy and um, intimidating. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I'm definitely a person that looks better on camera. You know, like everybody does or doesn't. You look good. I I'm saw a clip. Good. I'm saying I look better. It's a standard <laughs> of reference, you know? Like you either look better on camera or you look better in real life. I look right. better on camera. Yeah. You know, it's probably, if you could choose one, I would think you would want to look better in real life because that's the right. one you're going around with. But right. I think because I have a big head, you know, <laughs> so I see myself on the camera and I'm like, oh, I, I'm a big I, dude. I wish I was, I wish I actually looked that way normally. I think I actually literally look better on screen. I'm, I was comfortable in front of the cameras, you know, it didn't bother me at all. That's, that's a real skill, right? To like get down and just be yourself or the character. That's what you're trying to do. I mean, the best actors are, are really good at playing themselves. You know, I mean, it, it helps so much that I already directed two movies, mm-hmm. so I already had theories about acting. I had Watching ideas, people. you know, trying to from, just from trying to encourage people to do the best that they can do and to be vulnerable and, mm-hmm. you know. And then switching over to Adderall Diaries, mm-hmm. um, what, you're friends with James Franco still? Yeah. Or, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, what did he think of the new movie? What, I mean, he hasn't seen it. I don't really want people to see it on Vimeo, you know? Like, it, he's not going to see it unless he shows up for a screening. Yeah. Um, I'm not just going to send him a Vimeo link. He hasn't asked anyway, but, I mean, he's supportive, I think. We, I mean, we really haven't talked about it. We talked a little bit the other day, but we didn't talk about this movie. I mean, he, he's aware of the movie, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, I made a joke in the movie and in an interview that I didn't think Franco had read the book, you know, that he made the movie. Right. <laughs> And, you know, we, he, we talked, and he was like, I read the book. And I was like, I know. <laughs> I know you read the book. You know, I'm sorry. I promised her I wouldn't say that anymore. You know. Yeah. Uh, well, I watched the trailer, kind of in preparation for sitting mm-hmm. down with you. That looked like a good movie. 
I think it's a really good movie. It's only 75 minutes, but it's a really fun, funny movie. And motorcycles, you know. Uh, oh, you mean the Adderall Diaries Yeah, Adderall movie. Diaries. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Ed Harris. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Christian, Ed Harris is amazing. Uh, Christian uh, Slater. Uh-huh. I mean, these are, like, top guys. Yeah, well, he, Ed Harris killed incredible. it. incredible. He killed it. I mean. <laughs> so why do you think it didn't have a, a I guess, a wild success or modest success? I mean, I don't, it's not a good movie. Really, it's just not really that good of a movie. Mm-hmm. I think, um, like the Adderall Diaries, it's like they took a lot of scenes from the book, but they didn't take the ideas, mm-hmm. you know. And it, the book was about ideas, about identity, you know, who owns the story, um, you know, is it, you know, is it, is it even possible to capture the truth, or does it become fiction once you write it down? Mm-hmm. You know, all those kind of things. Um, and the movie doesn't deal with any of that. The movie mm-hmm. is not nuanced. Mm-hmm. And so it's a it's a based on your book. Do you want to give listeners kind of a, a synopsis, maybe on Adderall Diaries? Yeah, and well, then they so, can kind of, is it about your life? Right. My the Adderall Diaries is a memoir that I wrote about a murder trial that I was uh, watching that I had a lot of links to because one of the guys in the trial had confessed, or one of the guys that had confessed to like eight murders. We also had like three girlfriends in common or something that kind of brought me to the murder trial. And my father had uh, written like this unpublished memoir where he claimed to have killed a person. And my father and I were estranged. I was a ward of the state, you know. Mm-hmm. And so there's all these kind of issues. You know, I grew up in group homes and so forth. And um, and that's, you know, what the book is about. You know, it's about that. But it's really about, it's about false confession and identity, you know. Like my father had one story for what happened. So I left home when I was 13. And he had one story for that, and I had another story. Right. And how could I reconcile those stories? How could I accept the truth of his story, even when it negated my own story? How could I accept the two things that were in uh, diametrical opposition to each other both be true? Mm-hmm. And but of course, I was never going to understand him otherwise, you know. And that so that you know, those are the ideas that the book are is about, you know. And the movie, The Adderall Diaries, which Franco. Uh, I think I don't know if he wrote it. He, he he you know he bought the rights to the book. He started it. He pushed it forward. Um, but a student friend of his that he met in one of his classes at NYU actually wrote and directed it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they took you know scenes from the book. I think I think it's more like the book was an inspiration. The the story of the movie is very little to do with the book, really. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean. The character in in the movie, Stephen Elliott in the movie, who is played by James Franco, wrote a best-selling memoir in which he claims his father is dead. And his father shows up at a reading and is like, do I look dead to you? And it really fucks up his career. Right. And it's like, who would do that? I obviously did not ever do that. You know, like, you can't get away with that. It's not the kind right. of thing that would ever fly. I mean, that's so much more brazen than James Fry or anything else. I mean, like, I'm claiming a living person is dead. That's not going to work. There's no way, you know, that, 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 that I get away with that, you know. So this memoir, and I had not written a memoir yet. You know, this memoir that's in the movie is not, doesn't exist. You know, and they would have him reading from it. It's not even my book, you know. Like, that whole, th- that, that was the kind of most important part of the movie was this, battle between the father and his son because the son had told this egregious lie about the father and there's just nothing resembling that in the book and then there's also you know he goes he goes to this trial and watch this murder trial 
Um, and that's what the movie is. That's pretty much the entire movie, you know. And then after Adderall, the movie I made about the yes. Adderall Diaries is just me kind of running around trying to figure out what's going on. What's the movie that they're making? You know, during the movie, even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. During the movie. The movie yeah, while the they're movie. filming, you're like, well, what are they doing? Yeah, exactly. Are they doing it right? And yeah. This, this and is my kind of yeah. small child I produced. Yeah, know, exactly. But, you know, it's, it's a funny movie. It's not a mean movie. It's like, you know, at the same time in the movie, yeah. like my roommate doesn't want to be in my movie. She wants to be a star of her own movie. And she thinks the movie that you're watching is about her. And we have this continual fight throughout the movie about who the movie is actually about, you know. And one time I break into an apartment looking for a reading, a script reading of the Adderall Diaries, and Michael C. Hall is there, and he's wearing a director shirt. Yes. And I'm like, I'm looking for the screening, and he's like, you're in the wrong movie. And then we have this whole, you know, conversation about that, where I'm like, you know, they're making a movie about my life, and he's like, your book, your life, or your book about your life? And I'm like, what's the difference? And he's like, well, do you think your book accurately represents your life? And I'm like, well, I think it did. And he's like, well, there's the problem. You wrote something that no longer accurately reflects who you are. And that, you know, and so that's what the movie, the movie after Adderall is a funny take, but it's kind of like all the ideas from the Adderall Diaries. It's none of the action from the Adderall Diaries, but it's like the ideas. It's like an interest. There's a lot of voiceover, you know, just like trying to puzzle through these things. And then at one point I go to the premiere, you know, and um, and so rather than you don't actually we use all this like stolen footage from the premiere, oh, yeah. uh, a Tribeca of the Adderall Diaries, and it's just me and my roommate sitting outside talking about it. Uh-huh. And then we use an animation for the after party, and we just the after party was a very strange situation, and we use use stick figure animation to show what happened at the after party. And then she says, you and know, then voiceovers and voiceovers, yeah. yeah. And that was the end of your story. Your book was now a movie. You received everything you were going to get out of it. Yes. And then we have a kind of like a wrap-up scene. and you Is know. that towards the end of... Mm-hmm. The, ah, interesting. And do you think it's... Uh, first of all, also, can you say there, there are a few screenings? There's one down at Stanford, I think, on the 30th. There's one is, tonight at mm-hmm. the Battery Club. Yeah. Um, though I guess this podcast won't be out in time for that. Yeah, next but, week. But yeah. you guys are welcome if you want me to put you on the list. The Battery Club's fancy. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's going to be a, very, a small screening. Um, and then... On Friday, as part of Litquake, it's screening at CCA uh-huh. um, at 6 p.m. That's going to be a, like a big screening, you know, not pretty close to here. Friday um, the 14th, is it? Yeah, Friday the 14th at 6 p.m., big screening, and then Tom Barbash is going to interview me after the screening, and I think that'll be a pretty big screening, pretty well attended. And then on the 26th, uh, Stanford is, is showing it, mm-hmm. and so that'll be cool. Yeah. Um, and yeah. was it Stanford where you had a, a scholarship or a... I had a, a Wallace Stegner Creative yeah. Writing Fellowship. That's a... They give five of those out to fiction writers and five to poets to like emerging writers every year. Mm-hmm. And it's a two-year fellowship and where they just give you like a bunch of money. I mean, it was like 20000 25000 but if that, probably less of the time. But yeah, you don't have to do anything. You, you stayed put and just get to concentrate on the art. Yeah, and, and everything's taken care of for you. You have an office, you have, you know, you do these workshops once a week, and Tobias yeah. Wolf like, runs these workshops, and, like, you know, you can meet with anybody you want, you meet all these famous writers, you know, really fancy writers come through, and you have lunch with them, and, and if you need an agent, you have no problem getting an agent. It's, like, yeah. really, like, finding just a big pile of money on the sidewalk is absolutely, it's probably the best thing that ever happened to me. 
you know. Right on. Yeah, that was really did good. Did you also post like office hours where no, I can't be bothered? I'm just. Oh yeah, totally. I, I can't be like, bothered. You come, the you office have, hours come. You get two two years, and you can do whatever you want. You know, it's that's incredibly well funded. You have all the resources in the world. And, and what book did you write then? That's when I wrote Happy Baby. Yeah. Yeah. And also in the mission we were talking earlier. Um, in, uh, here, living in the mission. Yeah, I was living in the mission. I was taking the Cal train down to Stanford. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, about, or writing about a lot of subjects that were somewhat cathartic and you're moving through and, you know, uh, using that as a learning opportunity to grow in, so, in some of those yeah. books, right? I mean, I'm like, I'm trying to remember what writer said that, you know, he didn't know how he felt about something until he wrote it down. Mm-hmm. You know, it helped me figure out how I felt about a lot of things mm-hmm. that I, you know, experienced in my life. But the problem is like, it's temporary. It's like, it's like self-knowledge is always shifting. You're shifting all the time and your relationship to your past self is shifting. And so it's like, I write to figure out how to, how I felt about, feel about something in 2002, but I can write about the exact same time to feel, to see how I feel about it now in 2016 and it would be different you know Mm -hmm. but um yeah writing it was really cathartic for me and you know i was i started writing very young and and i was in these pretty tough group homes i mean at one point i was in the home where there was 30 kids per room yeah you know and i was the only white kid pretty much because of chicago group homes and uh of course you know that's the thing you get beat up for. The same what, way, same way. If you're the only black kid, you get beat up. If you're the only yeah. white kid too. You know, like what? How old were um, you then? Fourteen. Yeah. And uh, you know, so but I was writing. I remember, like, I'd write these. I actually would write these poems, and this, the biggest kid in the place would rap the poems. Oh, that's kind of dope. And right? like that would keep me safe, literally, oh, like literally. And I just wrote all the time. It was just this thing, you know, that. I did. He was, he I didn't was so think about it. I didn't. I wasn't like I'm gonna be a writer one day. I never thought. I never had that thought. Up until I got the Stegner Fellowship, I never thought I'd be a writer. I just. I thought I'd go into advertising or something. Mm-hmm. You know, I was a history major. I didn't do an MFA. I didn't like mm-hmm. pursue writing as like a legitimate career or something. Or it was just as like those. I didn't think those type of people and the people that wrote those kinds of books were never going to be interested in what I was doing. I just like to write, you know. If you're working on some of the things uh, when you write to try to like figure out how you felt about it, mm-hmm. and, and if the truth is, and anyone I think who's accomplished and accomplishing things like you are, you're always growing. What are you working on now, and is it still through yeah. writing? Well, it's interesting. You know, it's like it's like it's like being a transvestite, you know, and like you just want to like put on the dress, and then you put on the dress, and then you're like you just want to go outside in the dress. And then you go outside in the dress, and you're like, I just want to go dancing in the dress. And you go dancing in the dress, and you're like, now you're ready to think about your father or your mother. You know what I mean? Like, wow. It's like there's always another closet. Like, right. You're always coming out of the closet. That's what life is, you know? Like, you do these things, and then once you do them, they don't seem like a big deal anymore. You know? So, like, a lot of writing can be coming out of the closet about depression, about sexual desires, about anything. Um, and, and, making those, and taking away the power... Of, of those things and the burden of secrecy maybe um, like you know I'm like really kinky and I'm part of this like BDSM world and I go to a lot of fetish parties and you know it's just like that's my community particularly in New York where I'm living now and 
I wasn't out of the closet about any of that stuff until like when Happy Baby was published. Mm-hmm. And people, read, even though it's like a, it was reviewed in the New York Times, a very literary novel, but people read that and they're like, oh, that's what he's into. And so, suddenly I was out of the closet, and then uh-huh. I was able to explore other things that were being blocked because I couldn't explore them until I got over this thing, you know, that was that was holding me back. Um, currently, I have a, another essay collect. I have an essay collection coming out next year right, with Grey Wolf. Happy Baby is being re-released, also by Grey Tell Wolf. Tell us about that book. I like I Happy Baby is like it's my fourth novel, but it's my only good one, maybe, uh-huh. and. Um, it's a very, very dark, I think, though I think it has an happy ending, but it ends on page 16 because it goes backwards. It's like each chapter kind of mm-hmm. stands alone, and each each chapter following that is earlier. Mm-hmm. You know, so you start with the guy's like 36 and really messed up, and you keep, you keep going back until he's like 10, you know, and it's written entirely in scene. There's no backstory. There's no narration. There's no ex- explanation for anything, you know, and so each section kind of poses a bunch of questions so you, that I had to like write more chapters to answer those questions, basically. Mm-hmm. And that's how I ended up going back in time and writing the book that way. Um, Why do you think that one has been uh, received so th- much attention? I think that it was better than my other novels. Um, it's just just better. The writing's better. It's like, it's my best novel. Like, I wasn't able to write a novel after writing that. You know, it was like my last novel that I wrote because... I had written a novel that I thought was good. And then it kind of always got in the way of me writing another novel. Mm-hmm. You know, so then I had to like start writing nonfiction. I did a collection of BDSM erotica. Then I did like mm-hmm. the campaign trail memoir. Or I wrote about the presidential election. Then I did, you know, the Adderall Diaries and wrote a memoir slash true crime. Like now I'm doing an essay collection. I started writing scripts for movies, you know, and uh, wrote a couple TV pilots. It's just, you know. That's wonderful. We sat down with somebody uh, about three, four weeks ago, and he really impressed me how he, he was so able to highlight all the different things he did, and he was proud of it. He wasn't like, I'm this or, or, or two things, you know, and you're kind of saying the same thing. I'm right, TV pilots, I'm a director, uh, a novelist, um, other short stories. You're also mm-hmm. editor of Epic. Um, a senior editor, <coughs> a senior editor, at Epic Magazine, and editor in chief at the Rumpus. I mean, you're, yeah, I founded you're busy. the Rumpus. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was full time. How, how do you like? How do you maintain an interest in all of those different things to do? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't always. You know, <laughs> um, I'm only part time now at Epic. You know, so I was full time there for a year and a half. Epic's an amazing magazine. Um, you know, they publish these, like, 12,000-word features. They don't publish that many of them, but they're amazing and really well-funded, and, you know, they're just insane. Uh, like, nobody's publishing the kind of stuff that Epic is publishing. You know, these, like, really good articles. I mean, everybody's read an Epic article, but nobody knows it, because uh-huh. usually it's published also other places, like in Wired or somewhere, or, you know, these other, other places. Um, like the story about uh, Silicon or... Uh, Dred Scott Roberts, Dred Scott Pirate, you know, the, the um, Silk Road, with uh-huh. the online marketplace, okay, yeah. and the big two-part article about that that came out and wired, and it was just this huge thing. That's uh-huh. Epic did that. That was our article. Right. You know, um, so it's like people have read our articles, they just don't know it, but uh-huh. we, it's amazing, the kind of stuff that comes out of Epic. And then the Rumpus is an entirely different thing, you know, it's like a continually updating website. It's kind of like, 
it's like the Huffington Post, but for people who don't want to read bad stuff, you know, it's kind of like you're hungry, so I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna slack at work, and you could like eat carrots or you could like have Oreos, and we're like carrots, you know, right. we're like always updated, <laughs> you know, and like well, slacking we're about, at work. Like we're that. about books, you know, where you're screwing off at work still, but learning. But you're kind of yeah, it's not it's not empty calories. One of the articles I saw on there, I thought you might have an opinion about this. I thought, thought it was pretty cool. Uh, good Muslim, bad Muslim. And it was this article with the podcast, podcatcher number five. Hmm. Does that ring a bell? No. Well, what do you think you're like true north or what, you know, what are you really trying to get when you're curating and you're, yeah, you're well, doing I mean, these and picking these articles? Yeah. I mean, I'm not doing it anymore. You know, I founded the rumpus, but now there's a full-time managing editor and she really runs it. When you Marissa were Siegel. But when I was, you know, I wanted, um, I wanted interesting interviews. I wanted stuff that wasn't celebrity driven. I wanted to like, cause I was, I had just finished the Adderall Diaries and I was spending a lot of time online and, um, there wasn't really a place for me, you know, and everybody was telling the same story and, and, you know, you had like the slate version of it and the salon.com version of it and the Huffington Post version of it, but it was like, you know. Michelle's dog bit Obama today, you know, and like, let's, let's like break that down. And like, we were just not going to do that. So it was, it was basically a place where there was no pop culture on the rumpus, not even smart pop culture, just like zero pop culture. And, um, and that was what we were really about. And, uh, you know, I mean, the stuff that we were publishing, you know, we published this, these Dear Sugar columns by Cheryl Strayed. And it became the book Tiny Beautiful Things, you know, and um, Roxanne Gay kind of got her start on the rumpus. And just like really, really great writers. So many great writers came out of the rumpus, like just one after another. Uh, and it was just a good place. It was a place that people didn't have a place like that. Then it became a place for like really kind of amazing personal writing. Um, yeah, and then, you know, I let it go because I had to, like, focus on doing other things. I didn't want to run a website full-time. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, you know, I have to figure out what's going to I don't know what's going to happen next to the rumpus, you know, because I'm kind of in the process of figuring that out right now. Mm-hmm. The Sometimes motivation is for from several different things, and I also read that your motivation comes from some sort of recognition. Do you... Uh, does that need to kind of uh, keep going? I mean, I, I'm motivated by recognition myself. I'm not. Yeah, I don't know. Is it, you know, I mean, it's, it's not accurate. Or it's, or it's recognition. Or, you know, I think it's, it's different the, things. It's it's the. I don't know if there are any more. Well, I think the Buddhist term for it is the hungry ghost. Okay. You know, like, like you, your your desire is for more than you could ever possibly eat. You uh, know, like you can never ever fill that hunger you know yeah and um i think many artists have that and you surround yourself with a lot of artists is it in, you're in williamsburg is that where you're living uh, no i live in chelsea now in manhattan chelsea. i got priced out of brooklyn okay <laughs> <laughs> um so do you surround yourself with other artists i mean how hard is it to kind of collect those that group it's, it's of friends? Not, i know a lot of writers for sure yeah um i think I mean, when I was living in San Francisco, I felt like like almost all my friends were like in the literary scene somehow. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was kind of my world out here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, 
and, and it's funny because like in, in in New York, I kind even though I had like a lot of sex worker friends in San Francisco because I, I used to be a sex worker in my twenties, and I was always kind of really involved in that community. I think a lot of my scene in in New York is a lot of like sex work and sex positive community and um, that kind of stuff. You know, like I don't I go to fetish parties instead of book readings. I guess you know. Uh, There's a proposition on the ballot here in San Francisco. I know it's terrible. Do you know about it? This is the one forcing the sex workers to like wear con- use condoms. I stuff? think that's right. Yeah, yeah. it's awful. So um, you you follow politics, and you um, we're going to get back to um, following campaigns because you wrote mm-hmm. some stories about that. But yeah, w- w- what's your version of that? Like, why is it bad? Um, well, you really got to talk to someone like Laura Lee to really get in depth. Uh, take on it but you know all the sex workers are against it yeah and uh, you know what happens is it, it drive stuff like that drives people underground uh-huh. you know and so you end up like doing stuff illegally and and, um, and I think it's probably not very comfortable you know but I feel I don't feel super qualified to talk about it because I know if you talk to someone at Kink, they can just like break it down and be like, mm-hmm. here's all the reasons this is awful. Mm-hmm. If all the sex workers are against it and they are, mm-hmm. then you Listen. should not vote for it. Like yeah. it should be there. They're the ones that should drive policy. Right. Just like, you know, women should drive policy on what they do with their bodies. You sure. know, like porn performers should drive policy on laws governing porn. Yeah. You know, because they're workers. They're sex workers. Yeah. You know. Do they have a union like SAG? They don't. They, I mean, you know, the the lucky well, there was a strip club in San Francisco that used to have a union. Mm-hmm. They unionized and then they became employee owned. Hmm. So they were unionized against themselves. It was kind of an amazing thing. Uh, I don't remember the name of that strip club. It was in North Beach, though. Hmm. And uh, what about the campaign you were following? Well, it was 2004. Which, yeah, which campaign? Yeah, I was traveling with Carrie and George W. Bush. Really? Yeah. Get out. And that was, like, pretty nuts. And I was on all the different campaign trail buses. I mean, the Republicans were always more interesting because I don't know any Republicans, really. Right. And, um, you know, John Kerry was such a boring candidate, oh you know. Oh, But, yeah, that was my life. I mean, I was really, you know, I was a political writer for a while. And then I became really political. I mean, I was really political before. Who were you writing for? I worked, you know, I... Uh, I wrote for the Progressive a lot, and I wrote a book for Picador on the on the election. Uh-huh. Um, I wrote for the Village Voice quite a bit, and the Believer. Mm-hmm. I wrote giant articles in the Believer. I think I wrote three really long articles on the presidential campaign that year for the Believer. And um, but yeah, in, in two thousand I had worked for Ralph Nader, you know. So mm-hmm. during the two thousand election, I worked for Nader, and then I was writing about it in 2004 and I also formed this organization called Operation Ohio mm-hmm. where we did literary readings uh, as voter registration drives across Ohio mm-hmm. and all these just amazing authors participated in that Anthony Swafford and Dave Eggers and Julie Oringer and just like amazing people they would be the draw to get people to come and on the way out it would be like let's sign you up yeah well it was let's just like, it, it going, it was a voter registration reading that was the deal you came yeah. to the reading yeah. You registered to vote. Like, to, yeah. I think on the way in, you registered to vote. Oh, right. And, That's you know, better. <laughs> and, uh, Very smart. Yeah. And then we did the Progressive Reading Series, and that I formed a, what we call Lit Pack. It's a political action committee where we would raise money for, um, for progressive congressional candidates in 2006. Mm-hmm. We'd go all over the country, just like 
$2,000, you know, for people like challenging the status quo who are progressive. Um, and we did that in 2006. And then in 2008, we did this huge fundraiser for Obama at Robert Mailer Anderson's house, and we raised like half a million dollars or something. The mayor showed up. It was like crazy, but it was also like the end for me because then I was like, it made me feel not so good about all these little fundraisers I've been doing for the last four years. And because it was the same kind of fundraiser, it's just a bunch of authors reading that I gathered to, I invited them and we we're doing this reading. And uh-huh. the only difference was it was in like a fancy house with a fancy Rolodex. And, and so it just became a thing. And I thought, you know, if it's just going to be good billionaire versus bad billionaire, I don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't make an impact on that financially. And then we had the Stop American Apparel campaign to stop American Apparel from opening on... Um, yeah, explain on that. Valencia. So this is on Valencia. I was just walking by and I saw the sign in one of the stores they had to post and they were going to open in 16 days. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we started collecting signatures and protesting and then we you know, went in front of the planning commission on the date and it was just, a, it was more people I think than they'd ever had at a planning commissioning meeting. How many people do you think? Uh, they had multiple rooms overflowing. It oh, was just wow. huge. Instead of TVs or something like yeah. the other rooms? Yeah. And it just went on like in t- the entire day and it was a unanimous vote against American apparel huh. because they had to consult the neighborhood and they hadn't, you know, there's also a rule of, of oh, this was only about how this many only stores for, this can was, you have when you're well. This is the thing they only they only needed to pass the planning commission because they were a chain and they already had other stores. If they were if this was oh, the only one in right, San Francisco, right, right, right. we wouldn't have been able to protest them. But it was because there were already two or three other stores that so they had to consult the neighborhood because of the impact, you know. And th- but that was such a tactical battle or a tactical victory, you know, because I feel like we won the battle and lost the war, you know? So out of curiosity, since um, I just can't stop thinking about this, so George Bush, Kerry, 2004, mm-hmm. on the campaign bus with George Bush. Yeah. Did you get a nickname? No, I didn't get a nickname. Because like, no. that seems like, yeah. I wasn't, would be I wasn't around. I mean, I wasn't on a, I wasn't on a bus with him <laughs> if that you much. Th- do you, what what nickname follow. do you think he would have given you if you... <laughs> He was, I mean, Kinky. He, was, yeah, was, he was super charismatic. And I remember, the thing I remember the most, I feel like, was this, he was giving a speech in the schoolhouse, and, you know, it was in the round. There was people surrounding him. There was people in, in bleachers all around him. Oh. And he pointed to the people behind him, and he said, those people have the best view, you know? <laughs> and it was just funny. It was the kind of thing that John Kerry would never do, you oh, know? Just that kind of funny, easygoing humor that he had. Um, he was actually much more likable and smarter than anybody gave him credit for, uh-huh. you know. And with, I would say, with a kind of, I guess, evil integrity, you know, or something. Like, he had integrity, you know what I mean? Like, I, I think he really believed. He, he was what prin- he believed, right? He believed what he believed. He was yeah. principled. He was not corrupt, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and maybe that, that's, that doesn't mean anything to some people, but that mattered to me. You know, I would never vote for somebody like that, obviously, because he was also incompetent and surrounded by very crooked people. Right. Um, he wasn't qualified for the position, you know, and he did a horrible job, you know. Yeah. And it was amazing that he got reelected that year because he already, we already had a record on him at that point. In 2000, they could understand it, but in 2004, right. it was so depressing. Yeah, that my wife said, I've never actually seen Jeff, me, you know, uh, 
clinically depressed other than like after the 2004 election i just kind of shut down for a couple of days i was really bummed yeah it killed it killed my book i mean i think that book if i had written the same book four years later about obama's campaign i'd be a bestseller really but nobody wanted to read a funny book about the election oh, that election in particular right you know it was so it was just so so sad so how long have your you, audiences are democrats you know in, in a way or, i think so well you know what i, I mean, found out the democrats I, but they're I, no they are i mean i did I did a, a series. I did several anthologies of politically inspired fiction, um, and I edited uh, politically inspired and uh, stumbling and raging, uh, politically inspired too, and then Sex for America, politically inspired erotica, uh-huh. and um, and I was trying to make them very even, so I wanted, uh, you know, uh, I wanted like conservative voices and and liberal voices, but. There were no conservative writers that were writing good fiction. There were no there were no conservative fiction writers of any renown whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Like literally didn't exist. And I was like, what the hell? You know, I felt like I'd really stumbled on something. But um, I think eventually, you know, I uh, I came up with the idea that you know, in order to write good fiction, you really have to have a lot of empathy. You have to have the ability to put yourself in somebody else's shoes, and that's exactly what conservatives don't have is empathy right. you know not to say i think they have sympathy you know but not empathy and um sympathy people who have sympathy don't make good writers mm-hmm. you know it's literally the imagining yourself in some as someone else that's mm-hmm. how you write fiction you know and so they're all liberal some of them are like very liberal, like too liberal to be Democrats. Some of them are independents, but they're all liberal, all like all of them. And mm-hmm. people, when I would say this at the time when the anthologies came out, they'd always say like, "What about this guy?" They would like name this one guy, Mark something uh, or other. Right. And I would say, if you're all naming the same one guy, that kind of proves the point, you know, that like if there's only one guy, then He's for a- all practical purposes, there's nobody. He's you know, a- one or two exceptions is not disprove a, a rule right. I mean it should not be that hard to find a conservative literary writer right but it is very hard it, I would say pretty much impossible right and do you th- what, what would you think if you were on the campaign trail this year what if you wrote this year is kind of yeah, I, don't know, I wish I was it's such a nutty campaign you know it's it's hard to turn it's hard to look away from it it's hard to look away from I mean, I have to admit that I wanted Trump to be the Republican nominee. I wanted, like, the Republicans to have to take a look at themselves and be like, you see, this is what you are, you know, this is a reflection of you. But um, at the same time, that's probably what they felt when Hitler was running, you know, like, oh, anybody can beat that guy, so uh-huh. nobody's worried about it. Right. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's pretty scary, but it is fascinating. It's fascinating for sure. What like what, it, you know? What Trump tells us about us is really interesting to me, you know. Right. And also, he's interesting. He's just like incredibly. He's he reminds me of my father so much. It's insane. An incredibly lonely, you know, deep. I mean, he's so his needs are so deep and dark and fucked up. Like I kind of relate, you know. I'm like, you're kind of like an actor, you uh-huh. know. Have those kind of like deep holes inside of them he clearly has right. that you know but he, i mean he's also like such a bad person he's such a like true he is not he is i guess in a way he's the opposite of george bush right because 
George Bush had principles that were bad, but they were principles. And Trump, I don't think, believes He's in anything. He's just bad with no principles. I don't think he actually <laughs> believes in anything. I don't think he cares one way or the other about abortions or guns. Right? No. I don't think he cares. He just wants to be in power and get a lot of attention. Check. Yeah, it's exactly him. And it's pretty raw. It's kind of amazing. I can't help but think that, you know, even though, you know, she, uh, Hillary called uh, these voters that are behind him deplorables, etc., which I think is kind of, you know, when people just speak the truth and it's just unfiltered, mm-hmm. they're, uh, you know, if people are racist and misogynists and bigots, it's kind of like not what we want in our society, in my you know, very braggadocious opinion, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but the the truth for all these voters is they're in so much pain, or they they, they it's not working for them. Yeah. So to to have the the you know the parties and the people and the Republican Party, they're not really serving them well enough. Their ears aren't you know big enough, or they're not catching enough mm-hmm. of this uh, pain that they're feeling, and and they're finding their solace in in Trump. But there's got to be another solution because they can't be even after an election, they can't be just let to, let loose. Because it'll be a bigger festering problem. Mm-hmm. Someone's got to solve the, the jobs yeah. or whatever. Yeah, it could, it could be really ugly in two thousand in two thousand twenty, because those people aren't going anywhere. No. And a better candidate than Trump is going to come along for those people. Yeah. You know. Yeah, but, um, you know, what do you think? Like, you know, the, do you see that they're they're in pain? Yeah, I think you have a, like a lot of white voters whose standard of living has declined significantly, and then then more educated people come along and say, oh, you know, you're so privileged and all this stuff. And they're like, well, I don't feel privileged. You know, like, I don't have any money. Uh-huh. Like, I can't make the rent. I'm right. like living on, you know. And, and I think they feel like the people that are telling them, that are lecturing them, I don't, they're not, they, they don't, I don't think that they feel probably like they're not, that they're not hearing it from the Black Lives Matter community. They're hearing it from some, Harvard-educated white person, mm-hmm. you know, and and I think this happens a lot where, like, the person from the privileged community, you know, like me, like us, like, you know, anybody um, that doesn't have to work really hard for a living, you know, like, mm-hmm. bussing tables or, like, carrying things. Um, and then, to, and then to, like, we feel guilty about our privilege and all the all the stuff we've had and so we deflect it by like looking down further down the chain and be like you guys need to understand you know white privilege and like they're like fuck you i don't want to you know i don't feel privileged you know and i think that happens a lot they feel like they're being lectured by people who think they're better than them you know and that's i think really tricky and you know the intellectual elites that's what like one of my mm-hmm. friends said that they're they're mad because they don't want to be ruled by you know the harvard yeah. elites or the intellectual elites I think that's and so true yeah i mean i kind of the people i grew up with i mean i think of the guys i grew up with that's how they feel you know none of them you know they're all struggling they don't none of them went to college you know or not many of them went to college and they're you know they don't want to they don't want to hear that stuff yeah you know they, they feel like their problems are not being taken seriously. It's so tricky, you know, because at the same time, you know, we're shoot, police are shooting black people for no reason, which they've always done. Mm-hmm. And it's just now, you know, coming to the front. But that's been happening forever. 
mm-hmm. you know, and just all of a sudden we have these videos on YouTube. It changed everything, but it's only people are mad not because it happened, but because it's been happening forever. Yeah, like Ali talked about it, I think. Remember yeah. when he died not too long ago, where there was videos surfacing about his discussion about pre- police brutality. This is this is decades ago. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we try to keep our podcast in the, we call them a pod snack. Mm-hmm. So it's not too long, but I could just sit here and rap with you forever. But I wanted to get one more um, question into you and see how, where you, you're coming from. You know, everyone has a drive and somebody, everyone has like a fuel. And, and reading in, you know, some of the books and hearing each day and you know, being in homes and you know, uh, you know, having some sort of challenges and roadblocks um, can develop grit. It can it can do things to help people grow and get stronger. Like you don't the muscles don't get bigger uh, by uh, sitting. You know, they get bigger by doing press ups or pull ups. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm just rapping about that. But I guess the question is, where do you drive? Where do you pull drive from? Or where do you get like motivation from? I don't know. You know, I mean, I'm really ambitious and I'm really needy, and I'm not gonna ever be able to hold a job you know so um you know i just think it's from that like that hole that can't be filled you know like you know you just keep feeding that hungry ghost and like and uh that's just what you do Mm -hmm. you know yeah i don't i don't know i mean it's funny was it banksy had that great uh great quote he said uh any any artist will suffer for their work, but not many will learn how to take the time to learn how to draw. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know? So it's like being an artist, you know, like you're willing, you know, you, you suffer for the work and like, I don't know why the work's so important, but it is for some reason. Do you ever, when you're in the zone, mm-hmm. like today I was working on something and I get, I'm almost performing because mm-hmm. I'm so giddy. It's like I have this adrenaline rush yeah. and I'm just stoked on myself, you know, a little moment of self pride mm-hmm. and, and I get like that when I'm nailing something. Yeah. What happens to you when you're no, like it's the best. flowing? When, when the, when this, I mean, that's why you do it, you know? Yeah. It's, when, it's for the times when the words are just coming. It's like, those are like the golden moments. There's nothing in the world better than that. Does that last weeks or no, hours? Hours. Yeah. Hours, yeah. And how much do you think you write a day or a week? I think that, you know, I'm like, you know, I work with these guys at Epic like Josh Davis and Josh Behrman the double joshes mm-hmm. and they just it looks to me like they just sit down and they just like put in the time and they get a certain amount of result and it's pretty especially josh davis just like continually like one hour of his time he will get this much writing done or uh-huh. but i don't work like that i can like my entire week's productivity might happen in three hours uh-huh. but i don't know which three hours <laughs> so i have to be available for that three hours you know it's like I'm basically just sitting at the bus stop waiting for the inspiration bus and it usually doesn't come and it might never come again mm-hmm. but if I'm not sitting there I'm not going to I'm not going to get on it so I have to just kind of be wait be always ready for it you know so that's like recently I've been like getting offline and I've been t- I'm not getting on the online before 3 p.m. Uh-huh. I'm trying to just you know I turned off the data plan on my phone you know just any, anything that gets in the way of waiting for the bus I, I try to get rid of uh-huh. you know what do you mean waiting for the bus just that inspiration bus uh-huh. I want to be I want to be at the at the corner when it when it pulls up <laughs> you know I don't want to miss it oh man well I'm so 
absolutely delighted to sit down with you and, and hear more about Adderall um, after Adderall, mm-hmm. but also the history of Adderall Diaries and to sit down with the creative. Like you feed me. So I hope our listeners get some of that same food. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, thanks, man. Thank you.